Hello. We're moving towards a grim anniversary. It's almost two years since our dawning awareness of that new virus called COVID-19 that had been detected in China, and that it might indeed come to affect us. Soon to follow will be anniversary of the first case, the first death, the first lockdown. When something goes on as long as this, its history starts to be written while the phenomenon is still unfolding. Among the growing list of books about COVID is one written from the front line of those first weeks in spring 2020. This newly qualified hospital doctor had to struggle with the rising tide of cases while also coping with bereavement and being personally at considerable risk. Her book is not easy reading, but as we try to reflect on what has happened during this pandemic and what we should learn, it's a vital account. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rupa Faruqi, novelist, children's writer, academic and NHS doctor. Hi, Rupa. How are you? Hi there. Thank you. I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. I hear you've just come off shift. Yes, yes, I have. I'm sorry. You say I'm very well just out of politeness to you because you don't want to <laughs> bore people with your problems. <laughs> but um, no, I'm quite tired. I've just come off a set of 13-hour A&E shifts. Today is a day off for me because then I'm on again at the weekend. And then after that, I'm doing nights. So it's, yeah, it's it's been quite a kind of, you know, I guess, challenging set of shifts, but a challenging set of years, really. So I'm fine. I'm just getting get, getting on with my work and looking after my family like we all do, I guess. Well, thank you for your service. And one of the remarkable things that comes out from your book is this kind of work rate that you managed to maintain. And we're going to talk about what happened in those first few months. But you managed at that time to keep a diary and then turn that into a book. So I guess the first question is, why did you want to write the book? I think that's a complicated question because you know what? I don't think writers ever really want to write. Or in my case, I didn't want to write. I just felt that I had to. I think we write because we must. And for me, the start of writing that book wasn't really about the pandemic. I was in you know, December, January, I was actually quite ignorant to it because I was going through the loss of my sister. I was spending long hours at the hospice and we were preparing for, you know, for her death. And so what the book started out to be was really a kind of a way of me unwinding grief from myself, the bereavement process. It was just trying to understand what I'd lost. And then in the midst of writing that account, and I guess, you know, it's what writers do. We write, nothing really feels real until it's on a page. So it was a way of trying to make sense of it to try and, I guess, exercise some of these ghosts in my head. And in the midst of all this, then the pandemic just flooded around us. And I was aware that I'd been writing in the middle of a pandemic, that things were actually happening, that we'd been actually working in this way for ages and hadn't really properly acknowledged it. And I don't think it was until the day before lockdown that I properly realized it. And though the account that I'd started, which was about dealing with the grief process and the bereavement of my sister and trying to lock in some memories of what it was to have lost her, I found myself writing about what was happening every day in the pandemic. And it started to feel important, like a kind of duty, because when something terrible happened, and I think this is why I was writing about my, my sister's death, it's awful, but you also don't want to forget how you felt. You want to be able to reflect upon it and think, okay, that was a terrible time. 
And I, I can acknowledge and realize it was a terrible time, but I've recorded it and I can move on. And now I can look back and reflect and see how far we've come. And I think with the pandemic, I think it was something similar. I felt a kind of duty to write an account so that in some way we and everyone involved would somehow be held to account, be accountable for what was going on. And so it began to be a bit of a duty. And I'd like to say it was cathartic, that it was a way of kind of unwinding and unraveling what had been happening during the day, all these these terrible stresses. Because when you live in a terrible time, you think that it, it is a, a good way to kind of unload it. But in fact, it wasn't, I think, helpful to me. It was just like ripping off a plaster when you'd just begun to heal. Because you'd go through a quite difficult day where everything was changing and everything was so uncertain. And then get home and then feel, and now I must try and record it in some way. It began, I guess, to be uh, quite kind of obsessive that I had to, you know, even if it was just a few words, just a few paragraphs, I had to try and get down some account of what was happening in the day. You know, why did I want to write it? I didn't really want to, but I guess, you know, I, I did for those reasons. I just I just persisted in that account because I felt I owed it to some to some future self. And I really wasn't writing it for anyone else. You say that I sort of made it into a book. I think anyone who reads a book will can criticize me quite rightfully for the lack of artistry in it, because it is by its nature artless. It is simply what I was writing every day. And I didn't actually change it very much in edits because I thought it was, apart from you know correcting things, because I thought that the sincerity of what was really truly happening, I think it's actually reflected in the shape and the kind of fragmentary nature of it. And I didn't want to kind of polish it and make it seem sort of prettier than it was. I just wanted to have, you know, the rawness of what I was going through, what my colleagues were going through down on the page every day. Yeah. And I, I think one of the qualities of the book is just this reminder to us that when something huge happens in the world, it happens against the backdrop of the other things that are happening in our lives. And and for you, the thing that was happening was was grief for your sister's death. And that was the background against which these factors unfolded. But it, as I read the book, it may just made me think, well, you know, everybody who was at the front line in dealing with this, there were other things going on in their lives. Their lives didn't stop when this happened. And that's a powerful thing. And, and clearly, other things that were going on in your life are an important part of this book. And we'll come on to a couple of those as, as we go forward. But you talk about accountability and and your book is very critical of those in authority, from the prime minister down to the managers of your own trust. As we speak, kind of nearly two years on from the beginning of the crisis, and we all hope that we're, you know, towards the end of it now. Has your perspective changed at all, or do you still feel as critical as you did in those early months? I think looking back at the account, I, I really thought I'd be in a different place, actually. I thought that having written that account and to maybe look at it a few, you know, a couple of years later, I'd have thought, oh, look how terrible it was. Look how little we all knew, but look at what we've learned. And I can look back on it from a place of wisdom and learning and reflection and healing. And actually, it's quite upsetting, actually, to look at the account to feel how little has changed. And that actually, you know, much of what I've been writing about, you know, the, the mendacity of Downing Street, for example, being misled, the kind of political expedience of the NHS for being, you know, useful when it suits them and kind of thrown to the wolves when it's not. All of that actually hasn't changed very much. Indeed, you know, much of the patterns in which we're working hasn't really changed. I spent the whole of the Christmas holiday expecting to be called back into the hospital because we've been put on that footing where we were told that our holidays might not be honoured again, which is what had happened at the start of the pandemic. 
So it felt that all, you know, what we should have learned hadn't been learned. And I, I was surprised looking back because I'm not generally a very angry or sweary person. I never swear. And <laughs> I swear quite a lot in that account. And I am, you know, quite openly, you know, furious. I'm quite kind of untempered in it. And I think the the critique of national leadership, I won't apologize for really, because that's how I felt. That's how everyone felt. And I think actually time has not proven me wrong. I think time has proven that there was actually, I mean, potentially something quite criminal in the mismanagement of this crisis in the early days. I didn't, as I said, in January, I was in, you know, a world kind of spun by my own kind of grief and my family's grief. And I wasn't really looking at what was happening in the wider world. I was aware that there was this virus in China. And I was thinking that, okay, maybe it was a bit like SARS, but it's somewhere, it's happening somewhere else. It's not happening here. And it's very sad, but it's not affecting me. And that was as far as I let it kind of enter my consciousness. But those in government, they were very aware of the Italian trajectory. And as we approached the Italian quarantina, they, uh, those 40 days in the middle, being aware of where Italy was when there were just a few deaths to where they were two weeks later, there should have been, frankly, something done about it. I actually very strongly feel that if we'd locked down just a couple of weeks earlier, we would have saved thousands of lives in that early part of the pandemic. And I still remember during that account when we reached the 10,000 mark, it was unbelievable, unbelievable for when there was just, they were just talking about a few dozen deaths and it's not worse than a cold and what's everyone complaining about, to 10,000 dead. You know, that's like a whole football stadium of people dead from a virus that was potentially preventable, it felt almost criminal that they were willing to let a vulnerable demographic just take the hit on this and pass away. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, Rupert, that, that I just this morning I, I did a, an interview about the government lifting restrictions and there was a conservative on before me who said, and I'm, quote, I'm quoting this, he said, we are the envy of the world for the way in which we've handled COVID. And I mean, one of the characteristics of these two years have been that that at different times, different countries have felt as though they were in a stronger position. And now, because in a sense, we were ahead of the Omicron wave because we've got a reasonably good vaccination rate, we can make a statement like that, whereas at other times it's felt very different. It, it's We're only really going to understand this with a pretty long lens, don't you think? Maybe a year or two years after it's passed, we'll be able to look across the world and, and make a fuller judgment about how countries have fared. Um, I guess the you know the the macro picture isn't something that's really available to me right now, and absolutely everything is clearer with hindsight. But it's not as far as I'm my perspective is you know from working in the NHS in the early days of lockdown, it certainly wasn't a competition with other countries. It was about learning what we could from the countries that were going through this beforehand and actually taking some account of it. So, for example, if you looked at the sort of PPE that was being used in China, we never had access to that kind of PPE, at least not in my trust, not even in ITU. And when you look at what the trajectory was in Italy about, you know, how many deaths would happen if you didn't lock down, then that was actually quite available. So it wasn't about comparing and saying, oh, who's doing better? It was just about who, you know, what I was seeing every day in my trust. And what I was seeing was, you know, initially people coming into A&E and considered, you know, probably low risk and then finding out they probably did have COVID and sat in an open bay with every healthcare assistant, every nurse, every doctor going in, seeing that patient and then seeing all the other patients in that bay and then seeing every other patient in the hospital. You know, that was what I saw. And, you know, a year on, we hadn't learned that much either because I was um, redeployed to the COVID aerosol generating procedures wards early last year over January and February. 
And most of the deaths I saw were from, this was just before the vaccination program had properly taken effect because the vaccination program had started in December. And most of the deaths I saw on that terribly, terribly sad ward that was just full of grief were deaths from Christmas mingling, from elderly relatives who'd been taken out for a treat by their families. And this was something that had, you know, right up until Christmas been ratified by national leadership saying, oh, yes, it's all right to have Christmas before they said, oh, maybe not so much. And so people had been taken out for a coffee, for a treat, been, you know, gone around to see their families. And then the whole family had come down with COVID and it was the elderly ones who were passing away. And, you know, I had families coming in absolutely grief stricken and guilt stricken about what they had done when they had been following, you know, the rules, they'd been following the advice. And that had led to their parents or their grandparent passing away. There was one Friday morning when I lost four people in in one morning, one after another. So like I say, I can't, you know, you do need long lens, you do need hindsight, but I can only talk about what my initial experience, what my experience was, you know, hand on hand with, you know, each patient that I was looking after. And I saw many preventable deaths and deaths that would have been prevented by better advice and a better example from national leadership. Yeah, and no, I think the national inquiry that's going to be into COVID is going to be a, a a very important time for us to try and process a lot of this. Let's let's get back to the to the book. As you as you say yourself, Rupert, the book is pretty bleak. I thought the tone was captured in one of the many poignant chapter ending lines. You're, one of the ways you write is that is that you you often use the last line of the chapter to really kind of powerfully drive something home and one chapter ends with this line one of the bleakest lines i think i've ever read you say stories with happy endings are the ones that haven't finished yet i'm like wow that's that's pretty that's pretty rough i mean is that you are you normally somebody who who sees the world through that kind of lens well like i said i think there was something about the pandemic that kind of I don't know, that changed me. I think it changed everyone, and particularly going through it. And anyone who meets me would think I am, um, you know, I'm I'm really not a miserable sort of person. <laughs> I'm generally quite <laughs> optimistic, and I'm, you know, I'm normally the, vo- the you know the person who volunteers in the group to go and do stuff. I'm normally the optimistic, let's get on with it sort of person. But I think there was, I th- I think maybe you're not quite human if you don't let certain events shape you, if you don't kind of evolve with them, and if you don't in some way. I mean, like I was going through a time of bereavement. And then my bereavement was actually, you know, the tears that, you know, that we were shedding were actually kind of submerged in this kind of veil of tears and these in a sea of tears of everyone who, first of all, it was the anticipation of and the fearfulness of what was to come. And then it happened and then it kept on happening. So there was a fear that there might be kind of deaths and disease. And then it really did happen. And then it happened in such a vast and difficult way. And everything was changing every day. So you were actually very unsure about, you know, it was like quicksand. You had no idea where to, where to go and how to feel safe. And so you just kind of carried on carrying that uncertainty with you. And and do you recognise, Rupert, that in a sense, when we read your account, it is fair for us to be able to say, well, this is partially, the, the experience you had was partially a reflection of what you were going through because you weren't just dealing with the first wave of COVID. You were mourning the death of your sister. You were trying to look after four children. By your own count, account, dealing with a, a rather unsympathetic husband and at the same time, and I'm going to want to come on to this in a minute, unsurprisingly worrying about your own health. Now, other accounts that I've read have contained much of the anxiety, the tragedy of your book, but they've also had a sense of pride and of, of of solidarity. There isn't so much of that in your account. 
I mean, I think maybe pride and solidarity comes later when you can afford it. I think you can be kind of, you know, you can feel, pat yourself on the back when you think that you've actually done a good job. But I think that all of us felt, I mean, myself and my colleagues, if we were absolutely honest, felt that we're just literally kind of getting through the day doing our very best. But I mean, I don't think anyone was sort of, you know, high-fiving and feeling proud <laughs> about, you know, what we've done at the end of each day. It, it was quite bleak. I remember, and there was a kind of a weird dark humor about it. I remember one of the consultants saying, I think this is in the book somewhere, saying, you wonder about who you've pissed off in the hospital because frankly, who'll save the last ventilator for you? And we were all thinking that. We were actually all thinking, this is actually quite possible that, you know, you know, we could contract this virus and that might be a fight that we might not win. We were all aware of that when we went in every single day. So I don't, I don't think the book was about, it wasn't my intention to kind of talk about our pride and solidarity. As, and I think in a way that would have been kind of feeding into this other narrative that we were all kind of incredibly happy to have been put in this kind of situation where we could prove ourselves. You know, that, that was not the case at all. We, we are not soldiers who'd signed up for a fight. We were people doing our jobs who had something kind of, who had a situation inflicted upon us. And that was worsened by decisions made by national leadership. And so I think the book really does reflect, and you know, you can criticize me for this, but for our, our flaws and our failings and our fragility, it's not about saying how strong we were. It's about saying how fearful and weak we were, but still we persisted. And one of the dimensions here in the story is, is, is obviously your own completely understandable fears for your for your own health. And a dimension of that, of course, would be that you are from a BME background, if you don't mind me using that phrase. And and the statistics in relation to this virus are pretty dramatic. And actually, it's not just in terms of the overall population, but possibly one of the most startling statistics is the over-representation of BME doctors and clinicians amongst those who died. I think I'm right in saying that 95% of of doctors who died with COVID were from the BME community. What, what Rupa, is your view of why this is the case? Why is we've seen these levels of inequality in terms of the general population, but also in terms of, of clinical staff? Well, my hospital, like many hospitals, the clinical staff are more diverse than the population we serve. And so by just by nature, just by the mathematics of it, we have more chance of getting the virus from our patients if we are already a more vulnerable group while we're actually trying to look after them. So in the course of our duties, you know, those who are of black or Asian or minority ethnic background, we are serving a population who will very likely come in with COVID and be less able to protect ourselves from it because we are a more vulnerable group. It became obvious very early in the pandemic that we're a more vulnerable group. And the first three clinician deaths were of BAME background and were of around my age. So straight away, I was aware that I was in the demographic of clinicians that died. And it was, I think, not so much the big numbers, the 95%, but the individual cases that really hit home when we were actually working on the wards. And we obviously weren't allowed to mingle, but there were kind of kind of whispered conversations at the end of long corridors or kind of in passing, in the, you know, in the mess when we were kind of like getting our bags and things about, you know, a, a young woman in her 30s who happened to be black who, you know, had COVID and passed away, a young midwife who was pregnant who had COVID and passed away, about a boy who was 13, so between the ages of two of my children at the time, who had COVID and passed away. And it was these kind of individual cases that really struck home because we realized that actually kind of being younger or being fitter or not having any comorbidities 
these didn't actually help, but you know, you could still be at higher risk just by nature of your ethnicity. And the um I'm not aware if there was ever really a good coherent explanation for this. There was a lot of conversation in the early days of the pandemic about how these are populations such as the ones to which I belong are more likely to have certain comorbidities, more likely to have diabetes in the South Asian population, for example, more likely to have hypertension in a black population. But um, that doesn't really explain why a virus that sits on um, ACE2 inhibitors at the base of your lungs is more likely to take hold and create a pneumonitis that you can't get over. I've never really heard a satisfactory explanation for it, apart from the fact that we are in greater numbers. Yeah, I mean, one element I've I've heard from black doctors is a sense that if you're from a minority community, you have a kind of sense of not wanting to cause trouble and that part of what went on in the early days was that maybe kind of white middle-class doctors were more willing to say, you know, where's my PPE? Where's the proper protection for me? But that is one of these things that we're going to have to look at because, as I say, the statistics are startling. I, I want to move to the broader lens on the health service, Rupert, because obviously I now run the NHS Confederation and having come into the health world, I'm learning all the time. And and there were a couple of things in the book that really struck me. So so one was just the kind of the slightly surprising things that happened in these early stages. So for example, you, you describe it sometimes that there were just too many doctors around, partly because, you know, the elective work was stopped. And so surgical colleagues were expected to help out in other ways. So they were kind of sitting around with no, nothing much that was useful to do. That was a kind of it was weird in the middle of all this chaos. You also have people who are, don't really have a purpose. Yeah, exactly. I'm, you know, called in, but literally just little, sort of littering the room. And that's because it's all very well to kind of try and put a body in place. But if that person hasn't been trained and doesn't know that ward and doesn't have access to, you know, the equipment that will help, then there's not actually, you know, much you can do. It was one of the ways in which I think things weren't quite joined up. I guess similar to um, those hospitals being started, you didn't really have the staff to man them. It was much more style over substance because you can't actually provide substantive care unless you actually have, you know, not only a doctor, but a doctor in the right place with the right equipment and, you know, with the right knowledge to do that job. I remember actually seeing, I think it must have been on social media, I think it must have been on Twitter, one of the um, urologists, consulted urologists saying, you know, I can't do anything right now in this pandemic. I'll come around and help mop the floors. I will actually do that. But the truth is that, you know, the people who were called in, they weren't actually doing kind of, they weren't being instructed because, you know, to do things like mopping the floor, <laughs> obviously. So there was not actually a useful task for them. I actually remember that one day coming in and having a load of doctors who'd been kind of sent to my ward and, you know, they couldn't actually do very much anything. They couldn't see all the patients because they didn't know the patients very well. And you don't want, you had to, because of infection control, we had to minimize. So each bay should only really see one doctor and one consultant to avoid cross-spreading the virus. So we didn't have the computers for them to even do basic jobs like write referrals or write discharge notices or write up medications for the pharmacy because they were only like, you know, they'd given us like extra doctors, but there were still only three computers <laughs> for the three doctors who were normally there. And um, we weren't allowed to kind of wheel those into the bay because of infection. So we had this kind of strange situation. And, you know, there was me in the early days of the pandemic kind of working flat out with my four children at home not seeing me. And my colleagues at the same level of me in surgery were being sent home at midday because their wards were completely emptied because no more elective procedures were happening. And there was no one to see. And they did kind of, you know, a few weeks later, kind of start doing a more considered redeployment where people from, for example, surgery and other kind of deployments like paediatrics were kind of put into medicine 
and in a proper way, in a rotor where they could actually help. But in the beginning, it really wasn't organized at all. And I remember when all our holidays were cancelled and the bank holidays were cancelled, everyone turned up to the hospital and some hadn't even been given a rotor or knew actually where to go. So they were actually kind of creating their own rotor by just literally going to every ward and saying, you know, do you need a hand? Are there patients to see? Are there jobs to be done? It, it felt very, very strange, really. It's, it's not how considered care and continuity of care should take place, but that's just what's happened. And another thing that struck me, and I, this is obviously partially a reflection of that change in the case mix but we tend don't we if we watch tv dramas about hospitals to have this kind of image that people go into hospitals who are otherwise well and they go in for elective surgery and it takes place and they come out better or they go into an emergency department and generally speaking they're treated and again they leave the hospital reasonably fit and well but actually nearly all the patients you talked about in depth in your book for them, it was really much more about end-of-life care. They had very complex, very difficult conditions. And really what you were doing was really trying to extend their life by a little bit or to improve the quality of life that they had at the end. And it's quite different from the kind of heroic image of doctoring, isn't it? Which is about, you know, you take someone, you solve their problem, and then they go marching back out to their normal life. That, that really wasn't what you were dealing with most of the time. I, I think that's true. And I think it's possible that those are the cases that kind of struck with me because I think that, you know, if you did, man I mean, we're all very breakable as people and we're much less fixable. If there is a malady that was kind of straightforwardly fixable, you know, it would have been amazing. But that, you know, it's just how it should be. I mean, I'm sure there were cases during, you know, the time when I was, you know, during that lockdown period when, I don't know, for example, someone came in with, a 16-year-old came in with a football injury and I could straight away see which bone had been broken and put them in a cast and send them home for fracture clinic follow-up. I mean, I'm sure there were still things like that happening. But I think the things that kind of really struck home were what we couldn't really fix and we could just kind of mitigate. And I think those are the ones that kind of stay with you a bit longer when you're just trying to do your best, but you know that you can't really, you know, I, we're not kind of magicians. We can't, it's very difficult to kind of, you know, the job of A&E is to try and kind of turn around someone in a few hours, either into the hospital or back out into the community and with, you know, with a cure, with a, a medication or a follow-up appointment with something that will actually fix what happens, what has happened. But that's, you know, there are very few conditions that you can actually do that with, that you can actually say, yes, you know, I can be absolutely sure that you'll be safe back out in the community and that you will get better with, you know, with this medication and with this intervention and that everything will be okay. And actually, I think the worst for that is mental health because, you know, so many times when I was on my A&E rotation during the pandemic, we had patients coming in with mental health issues and it was really heartbreaking how little how little we could offer them. It became very, very stark that there was very little that we could do. They'd come into A&E, we checked there was nothing medically wrong that would correct any overdose or anything that might have been that might have happened. They'd wait to see our consultant psychiatrist and they would never be, even unless someone was very floridly psychotic or suicidal or at very high risk, there was very little that could be done and they'd just go back into the community with a kind of appointment that might happen in the next few months. It was really, really stark and really, really sad how much people were having to cope alone with mental illness and how little we had to offer them. But yet you've stuck with it, Rupert, because we're speaking nearly two years on from the events that you describe in the book and you just finished another long round in the in the hospital. You haven't at any moment wavered in your commitment to the NHS? Not to the NHS and not to my patients in Never at all. I mean, I do know many of my colleagues had not so much 
I know there's a lot of talk about doctors wanting to drop out of the NHS. I never really heard those conversations, but I did hear about a lot of people who were just very, very tired, who had these sort of PTSD type symptoms of just kind of reflecting, reliving kind of terrible times and wanting to kind of take a break from that. So people talking about maybe going to another country or going to another another space or moving sideways into another speciality or moving into kind of maybe more the teaching side or a clinical fellowship side or a research side, just to be saved that kind of, I guess, the kind of the clinical drudge of being kind of at the mercy of, of so many other factors when you're just trying to do your best for your patients. My daughter asked me the other day, she said, you know, why don't you go back to being kind of 10 years ago, mummy, who just kind of, you know, wrote books. I think they, because they were quite young then, you know, they were just like, you know, toddlers. They sort of had an impression of me as just being someone who kind of pushed them around to play group and then kind of wrote books in a way that was invisible. But to be honest, when they asked me that, I said, no, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I don't think any other job would make me feel as useful And that is very motivating to me. I mean, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am replaceable. I know if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, there'll be another doctor who will do my job. But I know that I am needed as far as I can offer any help. And there is, even when I'm on kind of a long shift in A&E, like I was yesterday, and you realize it's 4 p.m. and you haven't gone to the loo yet, and you've started at 8.30, I still think there is nothing else that I would rather do. You know, when you say that, Rupert, it, it puts me in mind of something which has been kind of getting me down over the last few weeks, which is that people say to me, well, you know, will the NHS be overwhelmed or, you know, but the NHS has survived or, or whatever it might. And I, I was going to say, but of course the NHS will survive. You know, it, it always copes. It will come through this. But the question is, what is the price that we have to pay? And on the one hand, that is you know, people waiting a very long time for a surgery that they need. It's the NHS not able to meet its key targets in relation to how long people have to wait in A&E or how long they have to wait for a follow-up for a potential cancer diagnosis. But then it's also the, the staff. It's also how long can you carry on expecting people to work under the kind of pressure we've been expecting people to to work under for the last Two years, and I worry sometimes that we've we've set the kind of bar in this position that says, well, as long as the NHS doesn't collapse, I don't know what that would mean for it to collapse, really. But as long as it doesn't collapse, well, then then it's all fine. But it isn't because we we have and we are continuing to pay a high price, aren't we? Yes, and you know, I don't think COVID didn't break the NHS. I think if we're being honest, we were pretty broken before this pandemic, and everyone was aware of it, but they were happy to let us kind of keep limping on as long as we provided kind of, you know, good kind of political value, you know, as long as you could, you know, put support for the NHS on the side of a bus and as long as you could kind of use it to kind of further your own political agenda, those in um, national leadership were quite happy to let the NHS carry on as it was. But I think it's now got to a point where, you know, you've chopped off someone's limbs and then you're complaining they're not running fast enough to keep up with you. So I think the the big issue with national leadership is, and it started before the pandemic, was about the lack of support to providing the NHS workforce with the motivation to actually continue to to build itself and not just those in place and retention of those in place, but to actually encourage people into medicine. Because who, looking at the last couple of years, really thinks that medicine and the caring professions are an attractive place to be? I think the kind of, you know, if you are the sort of person who has a kind of sense of showboating heroism and, you know, who likes watching the medical programs, then maybe some people might be keen. But really, we want kind of, 
you know, caring, diligent, you know, compassionate people in HS and in the community, you know, as carers and as general practitioners. And these are professions which have been hugely maligned, you know, even by those in government. As I remember really furiously watching um, Rishi Sunak giving an, an explanation to someone who was a carer on near minimum wage. And he said, well, you know, if they don't want to be a carer, they should train and do something better. And with that kind of disdain from national leadership, you know, what is going to persuade people to go into these professions? Because the truth is, is that, you know, I, I've, you know, work on when I'm not in any at the moment, my rotation is on a geriatrics ward. And I can have a whole bay of patients that I have actually medically optimized of patients who are well enough to go home now and carry on their treatment in the community. But I can't discharge them from the acute ward, even though I'm doing nothing medical for them, because I can't send them home because there is no carer in the community who can pop in on them twice a day and check that their basic needs are met. So they're effectively stuck in hospital. And, you know, that's a really sad shortage. And GPs, I think, particularly, who have a huge role in the community have been really maligned for, you know, how they've been managing. And it's, you know, it's really, really hard. I mean, I did, I did a GP rotation and, you know, to be expected to try and kind of communicate and diagnose and prescribe and take notes for a patient and make sure they're safe in the 12 minute slot that you have is, you know, is it's a really difficult, difficult role. And then they don't take a lunch break because they spend all their lunch breaks writing the referrals and catching up with what they didn't do during their actual clinic sessions because they didn't have time because they didn't want to kind of compromise the patients and then checking all the bloods and investigations to make sure that everything is okay. So you know, what's going to keep the NHS going? The NHS is unlike any other business. It's not like about profit or a bottom line. It's about the workforce. You support the workforce. You provide a better deal for the workforce in terms of the hours and what they're expected to go through. And, you know, people who love looking after people, they're, they're always, a lot of them, will come through. But it, it is quite hard to persuade people into a profession where it is quite so brutal, you know, in, in lots of ways. E- even silly ways, like not being able to book a you know, a holiday or a day off four months in advance because of rotation. So lots of people are, are booked their kind of weddings and are unsure if they'll get that day off. Well, Rupert, I, I absolutely agree with you that the workforce is now the number one priority for the health service. And of course, we we came into COVID with an estimated 100,000 vacancies and, and we've absolutely got to sort that out. But I'm in danger here of confusing my two podcasts because I do a podcast for the RSA, which is this one, and I do a podcast for the NHS Confederation that's about health policy. And maybe I need to get you onto the Confederation one and we can talk about health issues in more depth. But for now, I just want to say that your book, Everything is True, A Junior Doctor's Story of Life, Death and Grief in a Time of Pandemic, is incredibly powerful and moving and essential reading for people who want to understand what those first few months were like. It's also beautifully written, which isn't surprising because you are a writer as well as a doctor. Rupert, (laughs) thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.